in the book of Romans, and we are going to Romans chapter 3 today. And if you've been out for a few weeks, don't remember where we were last week, or you're new to Scripture, uh, Romans is in the New Testament, and it's written by the Apostle Paul, and it is really a letter whereby he introduces himself to the church at Rome. Rome had not been started by Paul. It's a strong church, and it's a church Paul wants to visit. And he wants to visit because he wants then them to help him get to Spain where the gospel had not yet been preached. And so this letter written to the church at Rome has become what some people call the fifth gospel of the New Testament. As Paul lays out his theology and the doctrine of the church in that first century, there's so much for us to learn. Now, we're in a difficult section because all of the first section is establishing the fact that all mankind is sinful, that every single person, man, woman, boy, and girl, needs a Savior. And so in Romans chapter 3, Paul is still establishing the fact that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. And in this section, he's going to talk about, that is the first three chapters in that section, he's going to tell those that are way far off from God, what you and I may call pagans, he's going to tell them they need a Savior. He's going to tell those that are a bit more moral, that live good and right, that they still need a Savior. And he's going to address his people group. He's a Jew by birth, and if you were here last week, I hope that you walked away understanding that. We'll not come to God by way of religion, and we'll not come to God by way of ritual. He, he is making absolutely clear to his people, the Jews, that they need a Savior. And so in Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Paul asks a question based on what we read last week at the end of chapter 2. If it's not by way of religion, if it's not by way of ritual, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, he says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. He says, I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. It's a wordy passage, and I get that. I hope that when we leave here today, there are three things that are a little bit clearer to you. Trying to be a good preacher, I got three points. And so the very first thing is I want to deal with that question, what is the advantage of being a Jew? And the answer to that is a great benefit that we all have. What advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision? That is the religion and the ritual that we talked about last week. 
What then is the advantage? What's the purpose of being a Jew? And he says much in every way. To begin with, and it's like he's going to start a list, but just like a good preacher, he never gets to the end of the list. He may as well have said in conclusion and write for several more chapters. But what is the advantage of being a Jew? He is, remember, establishing the lostness, the spiritual need of everyone. Those that we know as pagans, those we know as decent people, those we know as Jews. And he would say, don't trust in religion, don't trust in ritual. So what is the point? If all of that doesn't matter, then what is the value to those who are a Jew? And he gives one single thing, but it's a biggie. And he says the Jews have been given the oracles of God. Now, when you hear that phrase, I don't know what comes into your mind, the oracles of God. I think there's two primary ways to understand what he's talking about. But firstly, let me say, he's not talking about pithy little statements. He's not talking about funny little things that you got in the fortune cookie at the Chinese restaurant in Rome. See, they probably didn't have, but anyway. He's not talking about the things we read on bubblegum wrappers. I mean, he's not talking about all these. There's two main ways you can understand this. Number one, he's talking about the very word of God. That God had revealed himself in Scripture, and he did that firstly through and to the Jews. But then secondly, it was the sayings of the saints. Now, first of all, let me remind you, the Jews were the ones who had the very word of God. That that you and I know is the Old Testament. The law, the wisdom literature, the prophets, all of that was God's means of communicating with his people, his nation, the Jews. And so God is known because of Scripture. And the second thing is the saying of the saints. And, and what I mean by that is, have you ever heard someone say, listen, I remember my parents used to tell this story, and then they tell you the story. And it's something maybe from their childhood they don't remember. It's something from their grandparents they didn't know about. And so their parents will say, listen, I, I want to tell you this story. And then you and I all have our stories. And sometimes you and I will say to others, listen, I want to tell you about this time. And you tell the story, and there's a lesson learned, there's some truth communicated. That's what Paul is talking about. Both the word of God and the saying of the saints. But I'll tell you the main thing we need to take away from this. Paul is telling the church at Rome that God has never hidden from mankind. God has always been readily available and easy to understand. He's always been there. Here's the deal. God has never been hidden. Now, I've told you all before about my childhood, and let me just say again, I was not the precious child that I am today. Uh, I've told you all before, I got kicked out of church. I mean, it's amazing that a preacher would tell that story. There's probably a lot of preachers with that story, but I can remember that tense confrontation when they said back in the day we had training union church training some of y'all old enough to remember that my mother used to take me till they said joanne don't ever bring him back now you know i look back on that as a pastor and i'm thinking i've been in ministry for a long time i've never told a family don't bring your kid back to church how bad was i i mean really <laughs> but here, here's what i want to tell you about it's not that it's I, my mother used to take me shopping with her all over Birmingham, Alabama. And I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. How did I feel? 
I hated it. So being the precious little angel that I was, I'd figure out a way to entertain myself. And I took to hiding from my mother while she was shopping. I would hide in the clothes racks. Yeah, some of y'all are nodding at me. Y'all did it. Your kids did it. Those are good people. I just want to tell you. But I can remember, I, I've tried to rack my brain and remember if this was at Parisians at West, at, at, in West End, at Five Points West, or what used to be Riches at Brookwood Village. But I can remember hiding so long and so well, my mother could not find me. And I can still hear her calling my name, getting other salespeople to help her look. Until I knew she was next to me and I stepped out of that clothes rack next to her. Can I just say she wasn't happy to see me at that point? <laughs> I was hiding. I was having fun. Can I tell you that's the complete opposite of God? He has never, ever hidden. He's always made himself. So when... Paul says of the Jews, they were given the oracles of God. Listen, it goes beyond Scripture. It is the fact that you and I can know God. That's why this is so significant. Let me illustrate it another way, if you'll show that video. And I believe my eyes. Why have you come back? Please, sir, we've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said, come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures, think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Aunt Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yeah. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. No, my dear, I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. I tell you, I think there's some folks who do see God that way, like he's hiding behind a curtain and that he doesn't have time for them and he'll always say, come back tomorrow, and there's some trick up his sleeve. And some people see God as just a bad humbug, like they describe the Wizard of Oz. Friend, I just want to tell you, that's not who our God is. He is readily available, and so we can know him through his scripture, but don't let me leave you without reminding you, the next generation will know God because of the stories we tell them about God. 
And so it's one thing to hand them a Bible, and we should. It's one thing to have them in Sunday school, and we should. It's one thing to have them in small groups, and we should. It's one thing to have them with friends where they're studying God's Word. But I'm telling you, you and I better be telling our stories of God. See, I can tell you stories about God's grace because I've experienced God's grace. I can tell you stories about God's faithfulness because he's been faithful to me. I can tell you about God's creativity because I can sit in nature and I can watch the sunrise, the sunset, the beauty of the rainbow. I can tell you all about God's creativity because he's touched my heart through nature. I can tell you about God's provision because there have been times in my life when he's provided for me. And if you've walked with God more than about five minutes, you've got stories to tell and you need to be telling those stories. See, the first thing I want you to understand today is that you and I can know God. But the second thing I want you to know is that God is a God that we can trust because he's faithful. Look again with me in Romans chapter 3. What if some, verse 3 says, were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and this is a quote from Psalm 51, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Quote, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What this is, is really, it raises the issue of whether or not you and I have some effect over God. See, Paul writes in such a way where he will pose these questions and have a discussion with himself. He's imagining how some people might push back. He's imagining the questions some people might ask. And so what he's asking here is, if you and I are unfaithful, does that have an effect on God? Now, why would he even ponder this question? Well, it is because that's how we experience life every day. When somebody is unfaithful to us, it then has an effect on us. When somebody who's been our good friend for a while and something happens and distance grows, then we begin to feel distance. And so Paul knows our human nature. And our human nature is to think, well, if I'm this way and they're that way, then we're going to be crossways and it's not going to be the same. And so he raises the question about God, what if some of us are unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul says, absolutely not. And so I want you to understand today, it's not only that you and I can know God, but it is that our God is faithful. Don't ever forget that he's faithful. Don't ever doubt that he's faithful. And here's the deal. He's faithful because of who he is, not because of who I am. Because what's going to happen in life is that I'm going to fail him from time to time. I know that from my own experience. You may know that from your experience. I can tell you that was the experience with Israel. I've told you this before, but it's such a critical passage. When you go to Genesis chapter 12, you read about Abram, who God called. And God said to Abram, I'm going to make you, Abram, into a nation. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those who bless you. And he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. When you move from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15, 
God has then made a covenant, a promise with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham land and a nation and a son. And so, I just want to remind you, God has been faithful to that promise. Did Abraham ever fail God? Yes. Did others who came along ever fail God? Yes. But guess who's been faithful all along? God has been faithful all along. And he's faithful to that promise still today. Because when you come forward to the New Testament and you get into the book of Galatians, which we've been in on Wednesday nights, we find out that the promise God made to Abraham referred to Jesus, his son. And so when you and I hear about Jesus and when God's grace is poured out on us and we realize how lost we are and how we cannot save ourselves and we come by faith and confess Jesus as Lord of our lives, we then become a part of the promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago. Is God faithful? Well, I'm living, breathing example that he is faithful and many of you are the same. God is faithful. He's not faithful because of who I am. He's faithful because of who he is. And when I fail him individually, he's still faithful to me as an individual. When we fail him as a church, he's still faithful to the church. When Israel failed him as a nation, he was still faithful to the nation. He's not like the guy who walked into a place. He had a picture of his girlfriend in a frame. College student, so in love, had this picture, and he wanted another copy of the picture. And he goes to the place where the man can make a copy, and he says, I've got to take the picture out. And he says, that's fine, I just need another copy of the picture. And so when they took the photograph out of the, fame, out of the frame, they found written on the back, My dearest Tom, I love you with all of my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever and ever. I'm yours for all eternity. It was signed Diane and said, P.S., if we ever break up, I want this picture back. <laughs> See, we're accustomed to having a P.S. attached in our lives. With God, there's never a postscript. He's just faithful, faithful, faithful. Always and forever. Now, I told you this passage, Paul quotes from Psalm 51, the last part of the verse I highlighted, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That is a quote from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by David, the king of Israel a man that was described as after God's own heart. He was the king that God made some phenomenal promises to. In fact, if you go to 2 Samuel, you can read how God said to David, I'm going to give you a name and a place, and I'm going to give you rest. In fact, it was in the context of those promises that God gave David, 2 Samuel, David says, God's been so good to me, I want to be good to God, I want to build him a house. And God said, no, David, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to make you into a house. I'm going to make you into a dynasty where I will live and I will reign. And when you look at David, you got to step back and say, man, David had it going on. 
But if you know just a little bit about Scripture, you know David messed up royally, no pun intended. There was a time when many would say David should have been off at war, but instead he was home and Bathsheba taking a bath caught his eye. And it wasn't enough that she caught his eye. He determined in his heart he must have Bathsheba. And he sends for Bathsheba, and he sends with Bathsheba, and then he realizes, I'm in trouble. And he calls Bathsheba's husband home from the war and says, Uriah, why don't you go home and spend time with your wife? And Uriah, being a much more upstanding man than King David, said, no, I could not do that. And he slept outside the palace, and David knew he had a problem. He couldn't get out of this by having Uriah brought home and sent home and spending time with his wife, who surely he had missed while being at war. And so David not only sinned with Bathsheba, but he sinned against God further by having Uriah killed. And so when you hear that story, you must think, well, David really blew it, therefore God's done with him. But friend, I'm telling you, God's faithful not because of who I am. God's faithful because of who he is. And so in Psalm 51, we read David's words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Here's the quote Paul uses, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, all of that's in the context of somebody who had failed, somebody who had sinned, somebody who had done wrong. But God proved himself faithful, faithful, faithful. Did others ever mess up? Yeah. Y'all ever heard of Jonah, the great missionary? God said, I want you to go here. And Jonah said, I'd rather go there. Didn't work out so much. Peter, you remember Peter when he said to Jesus, Man, I'm telling you, Jesus, I'll go with you even to death. And in my own words, I think Jesus said, ease up there, Tex. You know, just ease up a little bit, big boy. No, Lord, I'll go with you. Even with everybody else falls, I'm telling you, I'm going with you. And within a few hours. He had denied Jesus three times. But what did Jesus do? Did he say, done with you, Peter? No, he restored him, brought him back, used him to the glory of God for the building of the church in the first century. So, friend, I want to tell you something. We can know God. And when we get to know God, we're going to find out that he is faithful. I don't know how old the song is, but Bethel Music has a great song. The song says, I love you, Lord. For your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. And all my life you've been faithful. And all my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You've led me through the fire in the darkest night. You're close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. And I have lived in the goodness of God. And all my life, the song says, you have been 
faithful all my life. You've been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. We better tell the stories of the goodness of God. And let me just sidetrack myself here for just a minute and say something about your faithfulness. I'm regularly, constantly amazed at how much our church does. The the various ministries that you all are a part of, some of that is in this church, some of it is in this town, some of it is in the USA, some of it is overseas. I'm telling you, your faithfulness paints a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God. There are going to be times when you're tired and you don't want to do that ministry. There are going to be times when you think nobody notices, it's not making a difference. Friend, I want to tell you, when you and I are faithful to God, it shows His faithfulness to the world. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness. So we can know God. We need to know and understand that He's faithful. But now here's the deal. I believe, based on what I read in, pass, in, in this passage, I think Paul now comes to clarify a particular issue. Because as we get to know God, and as we get to know that he's faithful and loving and forgiving, it is possible that you and I need to have our attitude towards sin clarified. Uh, let, me, let me show you what I'm talking about. In these next verses, Paul is having this discussion with somebody who's not there. He's imagining what somebody may say. He's imagining the pushback somebody might voice. And so when you come to verse 5, here's the wordy part that we read earlier. So let me just try to clarify this, and I'll put a bow on it, and we'll be done. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then Paul put in parentheses, I speak in a human way. He's trying to humanize, he's trying to put in practical terms what you and I may think. And he says in verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And so what Paul is saying, various writers have tried to put it in easier terms. If our badness, if our sinfulness, if our evil activity shows the world that God is really, really good, then why should God be judging and punishing sinners? In fact, I think what Paul is saying is that if our sin makes God look so good and so kind and so faithful and so loving, then maybe I should sin more so that God will look better. Now, you may sit there and think, well, there's nobody in the world who'd ever think that way. Hang around church for a little while. You're going to find some folks who will come up with some freaky ideas. And so Paul is just cutting us off at the past. And so here's two ways we could ask questions Does God condone sin? Because if if I can know God, and one of the great things I can know about God is that he's faithful and he's forgiving and he's loving and he's kind and his grace abounds, maybe God would condone my sin. Let me tell you something. God does not condone your sin, my sin, or any sin. And if there's no sin that God condones, there's no sin you and I should condone. 
The, the second question that could be asked, does my sin exalt God? Maybe if my being super bad, God will seem to be so good. Let me just cut you off at the pass. God exempts no one. No sin is good. It is never right to sin. It is never right to do wrong. It's never wrong to do right. We need to clarify our attitude towards sin. Because I'm telling you, if you and I are not careful, we'll get to know God. We'll know how faithful, good, and loving, and kind He is. And we may not have a healthy perspective on our sin. And we'll just think, well, it doesn't matter. He's going to forgive me. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm covered by the blood. I'm under the grace of God. Friend, I'm telling you, our attitudes towards sin could be dangerous. In 1992, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to reveal the names of past and present members who had bounced checks at the House Bank. Back then, Congress had a bank, and congressmen could put their paychecks in that bank write checks against it so they would have cash. Would you believe that some of our elected officials wrote bad checks? That'll blow your mind, right? I mean, y'all are stupefied. Y'all don't even know how to respond. Some of you have forgotten this ever happened. There were 355 names that were revealed in 1992. One individual had written 972 bad checks. I bet they put him on the budget committee. What you want to bet? <laughs> Seriously, I bet they did. There was another individual who had written 716 bad checks. He had a press conference and said, it's personal. But the one congressman that really drew some attention was Charles Wilson from Texas. If you've ever heard of the movie, Charlie Wilson's War, it's that guy. Haven't seen it. Don't recommend it. Please don't hear that as me encouraging you to watch that movie. But that's the guy. He had written quite a few bad checks. He called a press conference, and he said some interesting things in his press conference. Number one, he said, it's not a crime like child abuse. The translation there is, this isn't as bad as you think. The second thing he said was, my people knew I was sloppy when they elected me. Basically saying, those people already knew I was not the sharpest arrow. Number three, he said, if you've ever bounced a check, vote for me. If not, vote for my opponent. You translate that as, everybody's doing it. The fourth thing he said is, the system was all fouled up. The translation there is, it's not my fault. The fifth thing that Mr. Wilson said was, it's no big deal. And you can translate that as, it's no big deal. Now, why would I share that with you? Because I think sometimes when it comes to sin, you and I will have the same attitude towards our sin as Mr. Wilson had towards his bad check writing. We will say, it's not as bad as you think. I mean, really, Lord, 
Look at that guy. Look at that lady. Really, Lord, my sin's not nearly as bad as theirs. We will say it's not as bad as you think. We will say the system's fouled up. We will say everybody's doing it. We will say it's just the way I am. I can't help it. We will say, God, it's no big deal. And I'm telling you, as we come to know God and appreciate his faithfulness, we better have a right attitude towards sin. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know what your attitude is towards sin. I don't know what your attitude is toward your sin, but I know what God's attitude is towards sin. It is what separates us from God. It is what will prevent us ever having a right relationship with him. It is our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. God's attitude towards sin is quite serious. And when you look at a passage like 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, God's word tells us this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. See, God and sin, they don't go together. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, today I think it would be helpful for us to understand we can know God. And when we get to know God, we're going to find He's faithful, He's truthful, He's good, He is kind. But that does not give us an excuse to live in sin. So if you need an attitude adjustment today towards sin, let me help you with that. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Father, before you and you alone... We measure ourselves. And your standard is holy and righteous. Your standard is pure. Lord, I thank you that we can know you through your word. We can know you through the testimony of those who came before us. And in knowing you, we can find out how good and kind and faithful and true you are. But Lord, that does not excuse our having a wrong attitude towards sin. May it never be. As Paul said, God forbid that we would ever have a, an attitude towards sin, that it's not important, that it doesn't matter. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us in this room and who will hear this message to have a right attitude towards our sin. If we say we've not sinned, we're lying. But what we do know is that if we'll confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we claim that promise found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that based upon your character and your faithfulness, we can and will be forgiven. So, Lord, help us not to have a negligent attitude towards sin. Find us faithful pursuing you, pursuing holiness as you are holy. God, I pray 
you would draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.